From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Paula made the dish, only to realize it tasted eerily close to the relish her grandmother had made. This is really crazy, Paula emailed me. I knew my grandmother's dish, but never its proper name. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. You just heard Emily Kaiser Thelen reading from her book, Unforgettable, The Bold Flavors of Paula Wolfert's Renegade Life. Now, I love this book, and I could talk for hours about it, so let me try my best to summarize this work for you quickly so we can dive into our awesome interview. Now, first, Unforgettable is a culinary biography with 50-plus recipes. There's a fascinating story about how it came together, which we'll discuss, and a super fascinating subject, Paula Wolfert. Couscous, preserved lemons, chicken tagines. Paula Wolfert is credited for introducing these and countless other Mediterranean ingredients and recipes to American home cooks. And this couldn't be a more fitting subject for our show, as Paula herself is one of the most respected cookbook authors of our time. She spent five decades writing about food and produced nine groundbreaking and highly influential cookbooks. In recent years, Paula's relationship with food has taken on new meaning as she adapts to living with Alzheimer's, and she has committed herself to activism and awareness around the disease. Now, Emily's deep friendship with Paula is the framework for this truly unforgettable work. It's a deep dive into the story of Paula Wolfert's life, the global cuisines she so lovingly and expertly adopted, and the lessons we can learn from her renegade life. Building on more than 50 interviews with Paula, as well as interviews Emily did with those she influenced, from Alice Waters to Thomas Keller to Diana Kennedy and Jacques Pepin. It's an amazing book, and we sat down with Emily at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. Just to take a 30,000 sort of foot overview first before we dive into talking about the book more, um, you've often called Paula Wolfert the most influential cookbook author you've never heard of. For folks who haven't necessarily heard of Paula Wolfert or don't know uh, what her impact has been, can you give us a, a little taste of who she is and what her impact has been? Yeah, it's hard to conceive of uh, given how far we've come, but when she first landed on the culinary scene in the early 70s, She really helped introduce the very idea of Mediterranean cooking to an America that had very little interest in foods of tradition at all. Her first book remains the seminal book on Moroccan cooking called Couscous and Other Good Foods from Morocco. Uh, It's the first major Moroccan cookbook in the English language. So if you've cooked a tagine, you probably have her to thank. Right. And from there, she just kept going. She traveled around the Mediterranean many times. She wrote another seminal book on the cooking of Southwest France that heavily influenced Alice Waters cooking at Chez Panisse. She um, was one of the first to really capture authentic Eastern Mediterranean cooking. She sort of plowed the ground where Yotam Otolenghi's ideas could take root. And more, she really helped introduce an idea about how to cook, a curiosity about traditions uh obsessive drive to get things right, to not dumb things down for an American audience. She was notorious for refusing to compromise. Mm -hmm. But with her rigor, she really raised the bar on American cooking and inspired more than one generation of American chefs. Yeah. And and she wrote, I, I think, eight really seminal cookbooks, a couple of which you noted. But 
One thing that I think people really think of Paula Wolford doing is bringing ingredients to the minds of American cooks, American chefs, things, some things that we sort of take for granted today, things even like arugula, which um, weren't widely accessible. Or there's a great passage in Unforgettable where you talk about Paula actually recommending to cooks that they grow their own cilantro and harvest the coriander seeds because you couldn't access those. Did she know what she was doing at that time? Did she really have a strong sense that she was bringing things like coriander or Aleppo pepper to the United States where nobody really knew what they were or could access them. She did. She has a reputation as a renegade who largely worked according to her own whims, but she had a real read on American food trends. She um, helped popularize these ideas by being a relentless touring cooking instructor back before the Food Network. The way food stars became stars, they would give cooking class after cooking class after cooking class. And the most popular teacher on this circuit was Jacques Pepin, and Paula was about the second most popular. Mm -hmm. Marcella Hazan was another. And these travels, she would go to tiny towns in Iowa and Arizona. She had a very, very clear sense of what Americans were eating and what was missing. Yeah. And she loved introducing new stuff. Right. Uh, And she, she certainly did in a number of ways. And then how did you begin to interact with Paula Wolford? So there's a great story of you being asked to make a carrot salad, for instance, I think is sort of the first time you know of Paula Wolford, not necessarily meet her, but how did you begin to know who she was and then um, come to actually interact with her? Yeah, so um, as well known as she is among a very elite circle of chefs, she's not very well known. And I was one of the many people who had never heard of her when I was a young line cook fresh out of college working in Washington, D.C., and as you say in the book, I talk about how a chef was teaching me how to make a carrot salad with a charmula dressing, and she said, this is a Paula Wolford, or inspired by a Paula Wolford recipe, and when she saw my blank face, she said, don't tell me you don't know who Paula Wolford is, (laughs) and we were in the middle of dinner service, and she pulls me off the line and takes her into her office and pushes couscous and other good foods into my chest, and she says, you are reading this tonight, and I did, and I just couldn't believe the bravery of this woman who had mastered an entire country's cuisine to yeah. write about it. And then you went on to become Paula's editor. I did. In one of those rare dreams come true, I was hired at Food and Wine. Um, and my soon after hiring, my editor said, would you like to edit the Master Cook column? You'd have to edit Paula Wolfert. And I was like, oh, well, you know, twist my arm. Um, <laughs> and it's a fun story because the it was a column that had started with Julia Child and Marcella Hazan and had evolved to be Paula, Jean-Georges von Gerstchen, and Jacques Pepin. And for Jean-Georges and Jacques, my boss gave me the numbers of their assistants, of course, because they've got lots to do. But for Paula, she gave me her home phone number, and I called it after sort of working up some courage. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, hi, I'm your editor. Oh, I'm so glad to meet you. Well, if you're going to be my editor, the first thing you need to know is I can't write my way out of a paper bag. And of course, that's not true, but it was a really nice entry into a great relationship. Where did the cookbook come from? So you were her editor at Food and Wine, and you sort of started to shop this idea around of a memoir. Is that right? And and publishers sort of said no? Yeah. Um, it's really a biography. I should probably make that clear. Sure. Um, the, That's a good distinction. When, when I was at Food and Wine, I had the good fortune to get to travel with her to Marrakesh mm-hmm. when she was researching the reissue of her Moroccan cookbook. And by then, I knew quite a lot about her and... Um, was asking her stories about, you know, 
So how is it that you got to Morocco? And was really struck at the gap between the sort of myths around her and the reality and how much everybody knows about her, but how little is known about the amazing adventures she lived making these discoveries. And I just got this bug in my, I could be in my bonnet, I guess is the expression, yeah. that somebody should write her life story. And it took me another couple of years to realize, like, oh, it's going to have to be me. And I put together a proposal, but publisher after publisher turned it down, saying her time had really passed, and her story was really fun, but she didn't have enough name recognition. She'd never had a TV show. She'd never had a restaurant. She didn't have the platform of someone like Jacques or Julia Child. And also, she had a, a track record of all of her books were still in print, and they weren't selling that well. So all in all, they saw it as a marketing risk not worth taking. So I was in the puddles of self-pity when she got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And this is about 2013. And I just felt this had to get done. And I was writing a story about how she was coping with Alzheimer's for the Washington Post. And Eric Wolfinger, the photographer, was assigned to take pictures and was telling him my tale of woe. And he's like, what, what do we need a publisher for? Let's just do it ourselves. And um, well, you raise the money on Kickstarter. And Eric's a very confident guy, and we ended up <laughs> pairing up with Andrea Nguyen, this amazing cookbook writer in her own right, and Tony Tajima, this exquisite book designer, and the four of us banded together and raised almost $100,000 in Kickstarter and released it. And then we had the good fortune last fall to have Grand Central Life in Style pick it up. And and it's had remarkable success. You've been nominated for a James Beard Award. You won a, a, an award from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. It's really receiving a lot of great attention now. Did you have any idea that when you were putting this Kickstarter together to crowdfund this um, biography cookbook, that it would take off the way that it did? Of course, and those were our wildest dreams, and it has exceeded every one of them, which has been so wonderful. But I think... Um, there's a real craving now for cookbooks and life stories of, of real weight. And her story is so renegade and, and she's such a self-made woman. I think it resonates on a lot of levels. Yeah. And you've said the word renegade a couple of times, and obviously it's in the title of the book, uh, Her Renegade Life. And I, I did the cliche thing of pulling up the dictionary definition of renegade because I'm curious about your choice of that word. So, you know, the definition of a renegade is a person who behaves in a rebelliously unconventional manner. Did you think about that word a lot? How did you sort of come to that word? Um, like we were talking before this conversation about how maybe you could have just used the word badass. Like, why why renegade um, to describe Paula Wolfer? It has a nice ring to it. Um, and I felt like it got at her defiant spirit and her adventurous spirit at the same time that she loved bucking trends. She said, all my life, I w was always interested in the other, whatever everybody else wasn't interested in. That's what I wanted to find out more about. She had a very intentional desire to do her own thing, to carve her own niche and beat her own drum. And she never, ever rested on her laurels. She was always pushing for more knowledge, more discoveries. And even in that, there's a certain defiant streak that I find incredibly inspiring. You open the book with a quote from Paula, good food is memory, um, with a, an adorable little icon of a tagine above it. 
it's, I think, a perfect and succinct summary of a lot of conversations around food. Like we talk about comfort food and the memories associated with that and how uniquely tied memory is to food and to taste. How did you settle on that quote? And and did that quote take on sort of a totally new meaning because of her diagnosis? Definitely. Um, the whole book took on a different meeting when her, with her diagnosis. The, the proposal that publishers turned down was a much more traditional biography with, in fact, no recipes attached. But with her dementia, we became very interested in exploring the relationship between food and memory. And I was really struck to find some very poignant quotes in her books that talk about just this. One of the ways she was ahead of her time was she recognized that food is a sort of 360-degree sensory experience. That it, And it's really neat. There, I got to put a small appendix at the back of the book about the food science behind this, but thanks to MRI and another sort of brain imaging technology, food scientists now can see that a good food experience engages your emotions, your memories, as well as your sight, smell, touch. She spoke about that in a book that she published in 1988, where that quote came from. She described it as the big taste, that what she was after in food were foods that really resonated on all of those levels that you could not forget. How was the process of cooking with Paula different because of her diagnosis? I know you've talked about one of the, uh, and, I, and this was an interesting thing for me to learn, one of the first symptoms of Alzheimer's and some types of dementia is that takes away your sense of smoke and your ability to sense smoke, um, which obviously can be you know concerning for some reasons. What was that process of cooking with her like, especially in that context of good food is memory? A lot of the recipes in the book re- require your hands as sort of a key tool and getting your hands into the food. And you talk a bit in the book about how that really brought memories back to her um, to touch the food and uh, have that sensory experience with the food. Was that different after her diagnosis to cook with her and to see how she interacted with food in that way? Yeah, in many ways, um, Alzheimer's is a strangely fascinating illness. We completely mischaracterize it as a disease of memory when it's really a dismantling of the powers of your brain. And I write about that a bit in the book. Um, And it was in cooking that you could see the most vivid symptoms of her illness, that she's she's able to carry on a conversation, she's able to retrieve quite a bit of information. But cooking and her relationship, her ability to judge the distance between the pot and the stove, her ability to kind of understand timing, uh, and make kind of long-term plans are all basically completely gone. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, this has grounded her. This has put her squarely in the moment. She is a walking Zen Buddhist, practically, which is, you would not think <laughs> about it. She was a notoriously high-strung person all her life. Um, but it also makes cooking next to impossible. So what we did was we manned the stoves, and use the knives um, and let her do all the handwork and also use her eyes and her and what smell she had to give us feedback and see what because it was the sensory experiences that were the most evocative for her. Mm-hmm. And did you struggle with how much to focus on Alzheimer's dementia in this book because she is just such a powerful 
story and person on her own, um, telling the story of Paula Wolfert versus telling the story of Paula Wolfert through this lens. How did you sort of grapple with the editorial decision there? Um, yeah, it was a, a real struggle that we resolved pretty early on because in the Kickstarter, we really talked about how we wanted to explore food and memory. But then as we started getting going, we found it was kind of distracting and, and we were in a way making the same points over and over again. So we decided to confine those parts primarily to the last chapters, which are her, and then a couple of appendices, um, and definitely focus on the driving forces behind the bulk of her life. But it was also interesting in a strange way. It helped us filter the recipes. It was a really daunting task to filter down. I mean, you're talking eight books, three reissues, about 200 recipes each, thousands upon thousands of recipes to sift through, but it quickly became much easier once we decided to focus on the ones she remembered best. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Emily Kaiser Thelen. Now we're talking today with Emily about her book Unforgettable, which chronicles the so-called renegade life of Paula Wolfert, an icon who introduced many Americans to the cuisines of Morocco and southern France. The book, as we've noted, is a wonderful read, full of lively narrative, wonderful archival photos from Paula's life, and some of her most memorable recipes. The team behind the book writes, and I I love this, so I just want to read it directly, where most cookbook authors might spend an afternoon with a cook to learn a recipe, Wolfert moved in. She would spend weeks in the country, learned enough of the language to talk about the food, and often lived with a local family. That approach is the approach that the Unforgettable team took with this book, too, spending hours and hours cooking with Paula, hearing her life story, and putting it into print for us. One of my other favorite passages from the book that really shows you how Paula Wolfer approached her cookbook writing is this. Paula says, Every person in this room makes a brownie. One person makes it better. I'm interested in that extra dimension in cooking. And Emily notes that Paula would watch the eyes of the women when she asked who made the best X, whatever the recipe was. They all knew. They'd turn and they'd look at that one person who makes it better. And that's where Paula would go right to that person to get the recipe. Now, speaking of recipes, the book is full of amazing recipes. I made a few for my in-laws recently. We loved the mint and egg salad. Uh, it has the sharp technique of grating the hard-boiled eggs instead of chopping them. It makes it super light and airy and herbaceous with the mint. We also love the chivapchichi, these little sausages that contain club soda, making them light and airy as well. And the Ivar, uh, a wonderful spread made from roasted eggplant and roasted red peppers that you bring together uh, in a bowl with your hands. There's a wonderful narrative about that recipe in the book. Now, before we jump back in, I want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. It's a wonderful, open, airy, welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their staff of expert chefs. And of course, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, uh, which is the backdrop of all of our Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some of the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes on topics like cooking under pressure for you Instant Pot fans or the Summer Learn to Cook series. You can find a list of all of the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Emily Kaiser Thelen. You mentioned briefly about traveling to Marrakesh with Paula Wolfert. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like? I know um, the book opens with 
she grabs you by the arm and sort of runs you through the Medina and the sights and the sounds and the smells are all sort of hitting you at the same time. What was that like to be with someone like Paula Wolfert in her element there in Morocco and witness that? It was, that was another, um, one of those moments where you meet one of your life heroes and they turn out to be even more fantastic in person than you could have hoped. She travels like nobody else I've ever seen. She has this way of behaving that you would think would be horrendously brash and imposing. She's this huge personality. She uses this Moroccan phrase, la palakalaufik, which means please leave me alone and Allah will grant you your every wish. Which is so perfectly Paula because it's both like very firm and emphatic and incredibly generous at the same time. And she says it in this horrifically broad Brooklyn accent. No <laughs> finesse at all. And she'll charge right up to a street seller and say, like, what spices did you use? Did you use cumin? And was it the belt, you know, rural cumin or city cumin? Which kind? And you'd think these people would be like, who the hell are you, lady? Go right. away. And they adore her. She, it is so instantly disarming. It conveys such forceful interest in what they're doing. She has this way of just opening them up and making them want to pour out their every cooking secret to her. Yeah. And she had such a sort of serendipitous life, too. I mean, as you read through the stories of her travels through Morocco, living in Europe for a while, obviously exploring southwestern France. She's from Brooklyn. She was sort of back and forth between the states. But she was always connected with these really interesting and intriguing figures. Everyone from, you know, the beatniks that she hung out with to working for James Beard, um, really early on. It just seemed like serendipity is sort of a theme in her life. She seemed to sort of be at the right place at the right time pretty often and could harness that uh, to her benefit. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's a saying, fortune favors the brave. And I think she embodies that, but she worked her connections and it was both serendipitous but she also knew good luck when she saw it and seized it you noted that she has this really unique gift for connecting with people um and you mentioned you know going up to a, a vendor on the street and asking about the spices but she also would do that in in her cookbook research by going into people's homes right and really just befriending um, cooks and learning from them. And there's all these stories of her showing up with a measuring spoon here, a measuring spoon there to sort of figure out what a pinch and a dash is to, to them. I couldn't help as I was reading through Unforgettable thinking of the parallels between her unique gift with connecting to people and your process through this book. Um, you talk a lot about, you know, going into her kitchen and cooking with her and having these memories and these recipes come back to her. And I thought that was a really interesting parallel that she spent her whole life going into other people's kitchens, um, getting them to share their recipes, their secrets. And, and you and Eric Wolfinger and Andrew Nguyen and the rest of the team really did that for her and did that um, to put together this wonderful book and, and biography cookbook of, of her life and her recipes. Thank you. Actually, no one's made that parallel before. That's really neat. Um, and I think we also had the advantage of technology that Paul has always been an early tech adapter. And one of my favorite moments wasn't even in her kitchen, but she was in mine because she was on my iPad on FaceTime. And I was making cassoulet, which she's famous for introducing the definitive cassoulet recipes and even popularizing the whole dish. And I... <laughs> We had an internal slogan in the in the project called 
that we said keep calm and follow the recipe. Because often with Paula's recipes, they are so authentic, you kind of think they're not going to work because they're so unfamiliar with anything you've seen before. And I had that experience with the cassoulet where she called for this huge pot of beans and sausage and six kinds of pork and... She called for only two tablespoons of breadcrumbs, and every cassoulet I'd had in restaurants comes with a sort of thick pile of breadcrumbs, kind of mac and cheese style. I was like, I'm just kind of, I broke my own rule, and I added too many breadcrumbs. And there was Paula sitting in her bedroom in Sonoma on FaceTime with me, looking about at the cassoulets that came out of the oven with a good 10 or 15 feet between my iPad and the oven, and she goes... You put on too many breadcrumbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite recipe of Paula's? Uh, I think I do. It's her no-stir polenta. I love because it's sort of a combination of technique and sort of renegade approach that makes something super, super simple as ground-up corn taste incredible and better than you even thought possible. I actually didn't know in, until recently that I always thought of couscous as being a grain. It's really a pasta, and um, Paula has a recipe, and, and it's a recipe you included in Unforgettable for hand-rolled couscous. Um, can you talk about that and, and how integral that is to Moroccan cooking and into integral to Paula's cookbooks? So. Uh, when we were um, trying to figure out what recipes to include in the book, she said, you know, when I die, if I can be remembered for anything, all I want to do is be remembered for... Um, how much more delicious it is to hand roll and steam your couscous. And it also is a perfect example of the sort of gap between the myths around her and the truth that you'd think with a book called Couscous and Other Good Food from Morocco, there would be a recipe in there for hand rolled couscous in her first book that came out in 73. But there wasn't because she was only in Morocco to write that book in the spring. And couscous is a wheat pasta and wheat is harvested in the later summer months when she had already gone back home. And so she wasn't there to see it harvested and made. So she didn't learn how to make it until the 1990s. And once she did, she went on a total couscous campaign and again started teaching as many classes as she could on how to do it. She was so enthralled because it's not totally easy, but I love we came up with this line, it's it's a great opportunity to pretend to be an oyster making a pearl because you essentially seed, you use coarsely ground semolina and then you surround it with finely ground semolina, just like a pearl is layers upon layers of whatever it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> whatever, yeah, whatever magical things are in a pearl. <laughs> I love that analogy, though. That, that's a great visualization of hand-rolling couscous. Um, and Paula for a lot of these recipes when she was originally publishing these cookbooks was inventing the terms that people were using to, to describe such practices as hand rolling couscous or, or I think the term rake is a term that she settled on because how do you explain to American cooks who haven't interacted with couscous how to properly steam it and rake it per mm -hmm. se. And she, she sort of brought some of that vocabulary or invented some of that vocabulary for American cooks too. Yeah, I think um, writing was always as much of an interest for her as food. And her books, I think, were groundbreaking in their specificity and their floral and really um, painterly use of language. I want to close with a little bit on Paula's legacy. I think part of what you've done with this great cookbook and biography is brought her story to more people. As you were approaching this project and you were putting together the Kickstarter campaign, 
Are there things you wanted people to take away from reading this book? I wanted to show that she was a fully formed human being. I wanted to um, celebrate the ideas and the ingredients that she introduced, but also show her warts and all and give a full and unvarnished portrait of a very complicated, but also very creative individual and to show every side of her, because I think it's so important with someone, especially like that, who is so inspiring to show that it was not easy to do what she did. And often her biggest obstacle was herself. Also in this current sort of culinary climate where there's a lot of sensitivity around cultural columbusing and um, appropriation, I think her approach offers a, a way forward that it was so intensely personal. Like She never claimed, this is the book about Moroccan food. She says in the introduction, like these are just the recipes I love. And it's very much a story about her experiences of those countries. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't change a thing about the book other than maybe to call her a badass other than a <laughs> renegade. <laughs> renegade, But I, I love I love both terms for Paula Wolfert. Well, thank you so much, Emily. We really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Thank you. This is a real treat. I'm so glad we were able to sit down with Emily. What a rich conversation. Now I'm headed over to Omnivore Books, where I'm checking in with Celia Sack in our From the Vault series. This is where we take a peek at a work from Celia's collection of vintage and interesting cookbooks. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey. Doing well. So we just sat down with Emily Kaiser Thelen to talk about Unforgettable, the Paula Wolfert story. I'm hoping you have some information to share with us today. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about cookbook authors who that was their career as, mm. uh, you know, was to write cookbooks, not necessarily be a chef or uh, have any social media presence, but really just concentrate on being, I sort of call them the, the Julia Child of their field. Sure, <laughs> and right. Paula Wolfert was a really important one because yeah. she brought, you know, tagines to America for the first time. She brought she introduced Moroccan food mm-hmm. to America. But of course, there was Julia Child who introduced French cuisine to America in 1961. Right. And then I think of Claudia Rodin, mm-hmm. who uh, is British, but really introduced um, to the Western world the foods of uh, the Middle East uh, and also Spain. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's also Diana Kennedy. Diana Kennedy, who's, yeah. yeah. She's 94 or 5 right now, I think. And she lives in Mexico uh-huh. and has lived there for most of her life and has really brought traditional Mexican cuisine to um, to Americans and Brits alike. I just feel like those are really important uh, authors and they're all sort of getting older. And I'm hoping that there's a new generation of cookbook authors who really make it their goal to bring certain cuisines to all of us at home. Yeah, I hope so too. And one thing I love about stories like that is they're all women. That's it's right. It's Paula Wolford, it's Diana <laughs> yeah. Kennedy. They're all women who really immerse themselves in these other cuisines and then really did a, a wonderful job of translating those for That's American so true. audiences. It's so true. They're not professional chefs in professional kitchens, which right. makes it much more accessible to the home cook. Right. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Celia. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to hear Emily Kaiser Thelen reading an excerpt from Unforgettable. And you can find recipes for Ivar and the Indonesian beef satay with peanut sauce. And of course, enter to win a copy of Unforgettable in our weekly cookbook giveaway. Now, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 
Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself with audio support from Nina Ernest. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, as well as to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 